want us to begin by um, thinking of a text in Hebrews chapter 4. Probably some of you familiar with this passage where it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, obviously speaking of Jesus. So he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Have you ever doubted that verse, the reality of it? Have you ever said, yes, but, in your mind? Um, If not, and maybe, especially if this passage isn't familiar to you, it could be that as I ask some questions, you might start to question the validity of that promise. So Jesus is this sympathetic high priest, Tempted in all things? Really? Okay, yeah, without sin, I can, I can get that. But how can Jesus sympathize with my weaknesses? He was never married. He doesn't know what it's like to be married to so-and-so. Well, actually, you're wrong because he's married to the church, and we're a mess. So anyway, we'll just set that aside. Um, or he died at 33 around there. He doesn't know what it's like to grow old. How can he sympathize with my weaknesses? Really? Have you ever doubted that promise? That statement of apparent fact? Or maybe you've thought, well, yeah, he was tempted in all things, but come on, he was God. He wasn't going to sin He couldn't have sinned. When the going got tough, Jesus was divine. We don't have that fallback. So how can he sympathize with, you know, I'm just all, I'm all human. No deity in me, okay? So how does he really sympathize with us? Well, I'm just going to let that hang at this point, okay? If that has ever bothered you before, or maybe if it's bothering you right now, um, certainly our text addresses it in a really, really wonderful way, um, and I hope you're encouraged before we're done. So let's read our text for this morning in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into our study. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 1053, Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53. And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, 
he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word, your living and active word that penetrates dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and gets down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we pray that it would do just that this morning, that it would expose what we need to see of our own hearts. And we pray also that it would expose the glory of our great Savior, the glory that is powerfully revealed here in this passage Please, Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things about your character and grace in this passage. I pray that you would drive away the distractions that we've brought into this room, that we might find in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would fix our attention on you. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and soft hearts to receive your word. And I pray that it would strengthen us and help us and change us. So Lord, show us our need of you. Show us your will and the ways in which you work that we need to learn and we need to submit to and we need to follow. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to pray. And we do pray, Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray these things for the glory of your name and in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the context of Luke 22 here, we just finished the Last Supper a couple of weeks ago. And then there was that little spat that the disciples had at the worst possible time about who is the greatest. Okay, so here's Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die and the the disciples are bickering about who's the greatest, jockeying for position. And then Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Okay, we looked at that last week. And so now we're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Okay, so just for what this is worth, a little bit of orientation The outline in the bulletin may be helpful. Um, Usually we kind of walk down through it, but as I continued to prepare after 
Um, this was printed up. Uh, we're not going to actually walk through it. One, two, three, in that progressive order. Think about it rather as three points of focus. So there's three points of focus, Jesus and temptation, Jesus and prayer, Jesus and the will of God. And we're going to look at all of them. We're kind of going to zoom in on uh, temptation, zoom in on prayer, zoom in on the will of God. We'll also zoom out and see the connections between those focal points, okay? So view those first three points more in that way, and I think that'll be more helpful for us as we walk through this, okay? So um, look there at the beginning of this section. Um, verses 39 to 44, and we see what Jesus is facing. We see the temptation, the trial that Jesus is facing here. Um, He arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation because the danger is there for certain. He withdraws. He feels the need. He is down on his knees praying, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So what is Jesus facing here? Why does he stagger here at this point? He has already predicted his death multiple times in the book of Luke. We've seen this. He said it in chapter 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised up the third day. Luke 13, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. Luke 18, same thing. So why is he stumbling in the face of death for the first time here? Other people... Before Jesus, and certainly since Jesus, have faced death with greater calm and peace than what is characterized here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some of those people have attributed their peace and calm in the face of death to the saving grace of Jesus. So how is it that Jesus could be just staggered to the point of asking if there's another way? Why is Jesus praying like this to the Father? So you can see here that prayer and the temptation and trial and the will of God are all wrapped together in this section here. Look at verse 42. Father, if you are willing, the will of God, remove this cup from me, this terrible trial that I'm about to walk through, yet not my will, but yours be done. So why is he all of a sudden staggering and asking that the cup pass if God the Father is willing? Well, the issue is that cup. He's staring down into this cup and his soul shudders. So what's in the cup? Okay, back in the Old Testament, the cup typically refers at least when it's spoken of negatively. Sometimes you have the cup of salvation, but when it's referred to negatively, it talks about the judgment of God. So Psalm 75 says, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to the dregs. So the cup refers to 
the righteous wrath of God against sin, the judgment that the wicked deserve, the sinners deserve. Isaiah 51.17 speaks of the cup of the Lord's wrath, the cup of staggering. So Jesus is staggering at the prospect of drinking the cup of God's judgment that we all deserve. Revelation 14.10 is most descriptive. It should cause us to shudder. They will drink of the wine, those who take the mark of the beast that reject Jesus as the Christ and the Savior. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is the just punishment for all who have rebelled and turned away from worshiping the one true God. And that's all of us by nature. We've all rebelled, all turned away from worshiping the true God. We've exchanged the truth about God in all of his glory for a lie. And we've worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. But that's why Jesus came. That's why he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. That's why he set his face like flint for Jerusalem to suffer and die. That's why he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. But on the the actual night before he actually drinks that cup to the dregs, he is staggering under the weight of it in the garden. He's staggering under the prospect of 2 Corinthians 5.21 actually taking place. God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's going to be sin for us. He's going to bear our infinite and eternal curse. And he's going to bear it for all who would ever believe. Just realize this. Try to drink this in. Try to take this in. What he's facing when he looks into that metaphorical cup. He is going to take, he's going to experience, he's going to absorb the equivalent of eternal hell, not times one, but times the vast multitude from every tongue and tribe and people and nation in the course of those three hours, the next afternoon from noon to three. What is that cup like? Can you imagine? No wonder he staggers. No wonder he asks if there's another way. He's not in agony here in the garden merely because of the physical suffering that awaits him, though that is horrific and I don't want to downplay it at all. He's in agony here in the garden, not because merely he's looking physical death death in the face, but because he's looking the righteous wrath of God in the face. So is Jesus facing some temptation here? You better believe it. And he's practicing what he preached. He's praying. Where else is he going to turn? And and isn't this the challenging nature of the dynamic? You'll start to maybe see some dots connecting here. We'll make them more explicit later. The one who's going to cause him to stagger, to drink the cup, is going to be the one he's coming to in prayer. The one he's coming to is the one who's going to give him the cup to drink. So we see how he wrestles between his will and the will 
of his father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That, bo- that, that language might bother you. Has it ever bothered you? And how can Jesus want something the father doesn't want? How can his, be, his will be different than the father's? How can Jesus be out of sync with the father? Jesus is tempted here, like it says in Hebrews 4. He was tempted in every way, but he doesn't enter into temptation. He doesn't succumb to it. How? By prayer. Okay? So temptation, prayer, the will of God, all these three points of focus and their connections are so important here in this section. So look again at the language he uses to see his trust even in the midst of his greatest struggle as of yet in his earthly life. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. The only way for me to not drink this cup is if you make another way, only if it's your will to do so. So even though he says, not my will, his will is still to submit to the Father's will. You see it? Not my will, not my desire right now in this moment as I am being tempted. I refuse to give in to this temptation. Help me. Instead, your will be done. And give me strength to carry it out. Which is just what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And lead us not into temptation. So this third focal point, the will of God, is huge. It's huge in the book of Luke. Okay, Think about if you've been here at all um, for any significant portions as we've walked through Luke, you'll know how central the will of God is to the plot line of the book. Okay, so early on, remember Jesus as a boy, the one little kind of episode that we have um, a window to back in chapter 2. Mom and dad and the, and the extended family leave. A couple days pass. Oh, where's Jesus? He's not with us. Go back. Where is he? Where is he? They find him in the temple. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must? I must be in my father's house. It's his will. It's necessary. This must necessity language is all through Luke or chapter 4. I must preach the kingdom of God to these other cities for I was sent for this purpose. It's God's will. Remember how the Pharisees, they actually rejected the purpose of God, the will of God. They weren't baptized. So in chapter 7, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose, his will for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Because basically they're saying, we don't need to repent. So Jesus represented the will of God all the way through his life as, as Luke is drawing attention to this. And the question was whether you would believe him and follow him, falling in line with God's will, or whether you would reject him and be at odds with God's will. Okay, so for instance, Jesus loved the sinners and he ate with them. And those who were too committed to their own self-righteousness, they rejected him. And just like that Pharisee who said, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, he went away unjustified because he was out of sync with the will of God. He didn't get his need, his need for mercy. And then the tax collector, this extortionist and opportunist, recognizes his need. He beats his breast for mercy. He goes away justified because he's in line with the will and purpose of God. 
Okay, so there's all this divine necessity, this must language in Luke. And it all speaks to the will of God unfolding. The Son of Man must suffer. Okay, there's even some really cool little evidences of this that are a bit surprising. So for instance, when Zacchaeus, Jesus is walking along, looks up in the tree, what does he say? He says, Zacchaeus, get down here. I must stay at your house today. Because it's God's will to save scrawny, stinking little sinners like you. Isn't that awesome? And so you can either get on board with that and say, yeah, let's join the party, like the younger son in Luke 15, or you can be self-righteous and stand outside like the older son and tisk-tisk. So this emphasis of the unfolding of the divine will finds its climax here. The will of God leads Jesus through and right into suffering, not around it. Now here's something to note. Satan also wants to lead Jesus into temptation. He has a will here too, right? Just a little ways back, it said that Satan entered into Judas and he went out to betray him. Or have you ever noticed that in Matthew 4, who leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? The Spirit of God. God's leading, his will is leading Jesus into suffering, not around it. And here, it's certainly the case. And so if Jesus loses this battle, everything is lost. This is the ultimate cosmic fork in the road. The question is, will Jesus submit to the Father's will? Everything rides on this. So as he stares into the cup of God's wrath, that he will have to drink to the dregs in a matter of hours, will he submit to the will of the Father right into suffering en route to his glory? Thankfully, the answer is yes, but how? How do you do that? How will he do that? Is he going to just pop a fully God pill He doesn't pull back his robe to reveal the S on his chest and smile at the camera, you know? That's not it. How did he submit to the Father's will and not enter into temptation? By prayer. And then this applies to the disciples as well. He applies it to the disciples, which is why he gives them that exhortation twice. Pray, verse 40, that you, disciples, may not enter into temptation. Verse 46, after his prayer, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So God doesn't take the cup away. He strengthens his son to endure and drink it. Look at the sequence here. I, have you ever noticed this? I hadn't before this week. I was like, wow, I never noticed that. When does the angel come? It doesn't come when the battle's done. It. He, I don't know. It's an angel. He. Um, when does the angel come? Listen to this quote by a commentator named Garland. The cup will not be removed, but an angel comes to steal him for the battle. S-T-E-E-L. The angels did not come to minister minister to him in the wilderness after Satan tempted him, like in Matthew 4 in the wilderness. An angel appears now, however, before an even greater battle against Satan in the hour of 
the power of darkness. So Jesus prayed the prayer, if you're willing, remove this cup. The answer didn't come at the end of the battle. The answer comes in the form of an angel, a messenger, in order to strengthen him for the battle that remained. Verse 44, and being in agony, this is after the angel came and strengthened him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Um, Most likely that's metaphorical, like our expression of sweating bullets, okay? It's possible there is something called, you can ask Wayne Ho afterwards about this or something, but hematidrosis. Um, a condition where under extreme stress and anguish, physical strain, capillary blood vessels dilate and burst, mixing blood with the sweat. That's possible. Either way, the issue is this is Jesus in extreme anguish of soul. He is in a great contest here. This is mortal combat. The phrase, another quote by Garland here, the phrase in agony, okay, that's translated in NAS, you could translate it for, for combat, He was strengthened for combat, okay? It refers to a state of readiness and alertness to take part in a decisive battle. It pictures the concentration of powers in the face of mortal conflict. And so, it makes sense that he's praying very fervently. We need to see what this is saying. This is saying that this was the greatest battle yet. This is the place where Jesus came the closest to the brink, This is the place where Jesus came closest to yielding to temptation. He obviously never did, but this is as close as he came. He had to pray fervently in order not to enter into temptation here. It was a battle. It was a cosmic battle that we will will not fully appreciate until we know fully as we are fully known. But we need to see how real and how serious and how intense this moment was. Here's why. Just think about this. Enter into what's going on here. Jesus had never sinned, folks. He had never distrusted his father. He had never feared an unholy fear. He had never been sinfully anxious. And now he's looking into the cup of God's wrath and he's going to have to drink it in a matter of hours. Can you imagine how close he came to crossing the line? Do you, do you begin to see how serious this all was? One sin, and he is no longer a blameless sacrifice. One moment of unbelief, and we're no better off than the moment after the first Adam failed and everything was plunged into curse and brokenness. Sometimes we think that his sinlessness somehow, this is going back to the introduction, disqualifies him from being a sympathetic high priest. We think he hasn't faced what we have to face. We think he could fall back on his divinity when things got rough. One, that's bad Christology, okay? He was fully human. And two, it misses the nature of his temptation in relation to ours. Listen to this. A couple quotes This is so helpful. First, C.S. Lewis. A silly idea is current that that good people, good people do not know what temptation means. 
This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Wayne Grudem, systematic theology um, professor at, um, out in Arizona, wrote this, makes it a little bit maybe more concrete for us. Were the temptations real then? Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds over his head the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than one who attempts to lift it and drops it. So any Christian who has successfully faced a temptation to the end knows that that is far more difficult than giving into it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end and triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, they were most real because he didn't give in to them. So this was the most fearful and decisive moment. (laughs) We can say it in any human being's life as far as temptation goes. And certainly, Jesus' struggle to succeed where we had failed. So, if we were to doubt his ability to sympathize, we would be like, so imagine two weightlifters, okay, in the same weight class, so that you won't pick this apart too much. Two weightlifters in the same weight class. And they're competing, let's say at an Olympic level. And imagine the one guy... You know, clean and jerk, like, bring it up, you know, bulging, and they go up, and then, and then the buzzer sounds, and he drops it. The other guy tries, and he drops it, doesn't make it. If we doubt the sympathetic ministry of Jesus, we would be like that weaker weightlifter saying to the, the guy that actually held the thing up, you don't understand why this weight is so hard for me. You've never had these plates Your plates are smaller. You've never had my plate. They're they're smaller. Your plates are smaller. What do you mean I don't understand? I did it with heavier weight. Do you see what I'm saying? Tracking? The weight of his temptation, folks, is infinitely greater. So it covers everything that we would face. So rather than you know, seeds of doubt and wonderment. Instead, we should say, yes, he certainly knows and can sympathize with any degree of temptation that I face because he's experienced way beyond anything I'll ever experience. So temptation, will of God, prayer, they're all converging here with this extreme intensity for Jesus. They should have converged for the disciples. But just as Jesus was the ultimate example of how to fight the good fight of the faith, the disciples are, unfortunately, the example of what not to do. Look at verses 45 to 46. 
When Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So look at the language here. It's actually it's an interesting parallelism going on. Jesus rises from prayer, and he's resolute, he's ready, he's overcome the temptation by then. And as things progress, we will see that he's steady, he's no longer staggering, and he's in control. The disciples, on the other hand, are sleeping. He rose, they were sleeping. He rose from prayer, they were sleeping from sorrow, having been overcome by grief. And what do we see in the coming verses? We see that they fail. Epically, they fail in the face of the temptation that comes. So let's look at the disciples here. Um, We're going to see this pattern for them. No prayer. They fall into temptation. They're not ready for the decisive moment. Um, They misunderstand the will of God. Shall we strike with the sword? And they end up actually working against the purpose of God rather than with it. So let's look at the disciples in the crowd here in verses 47 to 53. Um, look at the arrest here as the crowd approaches, led by Judas, one of the twelve. While he was speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. He's leading the charge. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, you see how Jesus is in control? Even though he's going to be betrayed, he's in control. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of Man, which like ratchets up the reality of what's going on here. This is the Daniel 7 divine Son of Man, the the one who is the king. So normally a kiss would be an expression of love. In Greek, the, the word is philemati, okay? From phileo, Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love. Back in chapter 7, Simon, remember, he invited Jesus to the, to the house and there was this prostitute that comes in and is just, you know, profuse in her kisses, Jesus' feet. It's expressing her love for him. Simon, on the other hand, doesn't kiss Jesus or give him any of the normal hospitality. And so what happened was his lack of a kiss betrayed the fact that he wasn't open to Jesus. And here Judas is betrayed by a kiss of betrayal. Okay, so the enemy hates with this symbol of love. The irony is pretty thick. Um, You might wonder why in the world would would he need to kiss him like this and identify him like this. One, it's dark. They had to do it under cover of darkness so they didn't kick up a riot with the people who were supportive of Jesus. The torches, you know, doesn't necessarily make faces clear. You don't have... Um, news outlets, internet news outlets where you can have people's pictures just everywhere, okay? So the soldiers may not have even known Jesus or ever seen him teach or whatever. So this was necessary to have this identifier. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, these are the disciples, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So it shows how they didn't get it. They were unprepared on account of their prayerlessness. And here they've entered into temptation. And one of them, we know from John's gospel that this is Peter, one of them struck the slave of the high priest. We also know the guy's name, Malchus, in John. But Peter wants the focus to be on Jesus, so he doesn't even mention the names. One of them struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his right ear. 
Okay, listen, Peter is not Zorro, okay? He's not Inigo Montoya, if you know what that means. Um, slicing off an ear, you know, you don't, you know, it's not like he was that skilled, okay? Slicing off an ear is not the easiest thing to do with a sword. So my, most likely what it was is it was a wild strike at the servant to cut off, we hear it's his right ear, so you can imagine Peter here if Peter's right-handed, Wait, I think that's right. Anyway, it works out, if I, even if I don't say this clearly. You can imagine Peter taking a wild... He's literally trying to cut his head off. Guy goes like this, and it cuts his ear off. Okay? That's most likely what happened. So, again, Peter's a zealot. He doesn't understand. He thinks that God's going to you know, bring his kingdom decisively, literally, right then. So, guy gets his ear sliced off. And for Jesus, the the fight, the battle was waged. It was supposed to be waged in prayer for the disciples too. His battle was waged in prayer, not with the sword. And so it's beautiful what Jesus does here. Verse 51, Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. He's, again, he's practicing what he preached. Love your enemies, chapter 6. Do good to those who hate you. It anticipates in the next chapter when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we see Jesus' heart here for his enemies. They hate, he loves. He is the dominant figure here, even though he is being arrested. And this last miracle that he does is a total rejection of violence in his name as the means of bringing his kingdom. If they want to paint him as a threat and a public or a political revolutionary, the charge isn't going to stick. So verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The language of robber is ironic here because it's these leaders who have made the temple into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. So these guys are actually the spiritual bandits arresting this man of peace, the prince of peace, who would die to give the world the gospel of peace, and he's doing it as if he was a dangerous criminal. They're arresting him as if he was a dangerous criminal. So it's obvious that these guys are in league, whether they know it or not, with Satan, with the evil one. They're emissaries of his. The power, the authority, the, dark, the domain of darkness is yours. But again, never fear. Jesus is in control here. He is about to plunge into the darkness. Remember, it went dark for those three hours. He's about to plunge into the darkness of God's judgment in our place so that he can plunder the domain of darkness. Remember how Paul prayed for the church in Colossae? He prayed that they would be filled with joyful thanksgiving to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because he rescued them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, rescue, 
freedom from slavery and the darkness in that dark domain, the forgiveness of sins. So, all of that leads then to what this all means for you and me. First, let's just note the cups in close proximity here. Jesus at the Last Supper had already given these guys, you know, Judas excluded, despite their imminent failure, Peter's denial, all of them fleeing, he had just given them the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And he is going to, he wrestles in prayer, overcomes, stands up and rises, ready to do God's will, to go right into the fire, to drink the cup to the dregs, slam it down, it is finished, so that he can give us the cup of salvation. The cup of his covenantal love and blessing. So that's the cup that we receive. Rather than, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, rather than having to drink the cup of God's wrath, rather than destination in hell, instead, we can drink the cup of his mercy and blessing and love because he drank it for us in our place. That's what we get to drink. So praise God for the removal of the cup of wrath and the replacement with the cup of salvation. Secondly, Note the example here. I, at first, I kind of push back on this a little bit because I think sometimes we're so horizontal with the way that we read the Bible and we just boil it down into these kind of do this, don't do that, moralism, you know, sort of lessons. And, you know, someone that would say, see, you're supposed to pray more so you avoid temptation. I just like, oh, don't do that to this passage. It's so much greater than that. But... We, I think I could be tended, I could be tempted to actually overswing here. I mean, I'm just thinking it's amazing that Jesus would give us a lesson on prayer, like in the same zip code as him praying like this. I mean, I was just thinking along the lines of first John four. Remember, it says, not that we love God, <laughs> but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. Like our love and his love really don't even belong in the same sentence. So Jesus is praying here and our praying. It's almost like they don't even belong in the same sentence, but Jesus puts them in the same, same location. This is the most intense, cosmically angst-filled moment that the history of this universe has ever known up until this point. And Jesus is teaching us about prayer in that moment. He's already warned the disciples repeatedly, clearly, that the times of testing will come, just a little bit earlier in chapter 21. And so right here, he's going to show them how to endure by the way that he endures and overcomes. How do we not enter into temptation? How do you and I not enter into temptation? How do we submit to the will of God, especially when the will of God leads us right into suffering rather than around it? How do we do that? By prayer. The temptation is there for Jesus. It was there for the disciples. It will be there for us. There's this strong gravitational pull toward falling into temptation with all of us. And the attraction is not just out there as if, you know, really tough circumstances are the problem. 
The problem's in here. So how can that gravitational pull be broken when we are tempted to shrink back in unbelief in the face of suffering and challenging circumstances to take matters into our own hands? How do you keep from entering into temptation? How do you combat the gravitational pull of temptation? How do we do that? Well, turn to 2 Corinthians 12 to see a disciple of Jesus live out in pattern echo form the ultimate example that Jesus gave in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then our life can learn from the pattern of the Apostle Paul as well, just like we can from the pattern that Jesus gives us also. So 2 Corinthians 12 Paul's being undermined, his ministry's being undermined by these other leaders that, you know, are boasting about visions and all this stuff. They're so hyper-spiritual. And Paul, ah, he suffers too much. How can he be a spirit-filled apostle? Why would you follow him? Follow us. Look at our resume. We're more impressive. So he finally plays on their turf, though he hates to do it. And he talks about one of the visions that he was given when he was caught up into the third heaven. But then very quickly... In verse 7, he says this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Okay, so what's going on here? Whose purpose is it to keep Paul humble? Is that Satan's purpose? That's God's purpose. It's, but it's a messenger of Satan. Yep. Just like Satan had a will in the garden, God had a greater and overriding will in the garden. And God was going to use Satan as a tool to accomplish his purposes. And he's using him again here through suffering, in suffering, in the life of the Apostle Paul. And guess what? It's going to happen with us too. So what do you do? Here he prays, just like Jesus taught him to. Three times. Oh, Lord, please take this away. It's going to get in the way of me being effective in my ministry. Take it away. Take it away. And the answer comes, it's not an angel coming to strengthen this time, but the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you because power is perfected in weakness. So he wrestles in prayer. Paul wrestles in prayer. And he comes out the other side when he realizes the purposes of God's will and suffering and temptation and trial, he realizes God's got good purposes here. You you actually want to show off your power through my weakness. So if you took it away, less of your power would be seen. I want your power to be seen. I'm weak in and of myself. If If you need to do this to keep me weak, keep me humble, 
and show your power, then you know what? Most gladly. I'll accept it. And Paul rose from prayer, and he didn't fall into temptation. He was able to walk forward as more than a conqueror. You see the pattern, how it parallels Jesus in the garden. And this is the parallel. This is the pattern for us as well. And he doesn't say, well, grin and bear it. It's a cross after bear. You know. He says, most gladly, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. I want the power of Christ to dwell in me and be seen in me. I want to draw all the attention to Jesus and his power and his grace, not to me as if I'm strong. I'm not. I'm weak. So that just brings it right, brings me right into the light of reality. For those around me, they'll see the power of Christ rather than the power of Paul. If that's what you're doing, Lord, great. So be it. And so through prayer, he didn't enter into temptation. He overcame it and conquered So do you see the purpose of God, the will of God, and even the will of God in temptation and trial? He's got purposes for it. It's not gratuitous. And so if we pray and submit and listen and are soft and responsive to our God and his wise, sovereign will, and we trust him for his strength, we will be more than conquerors in and through the suffering and the trial. So Please note this. Think about your own life and how you respond to the suffering and the trial and the threats that are out there in front of you that you want to shrink back from. And sometimes we run to all kinds of other little functional saviors to give us help and peace and comfort and so forth. Listen, if you and I don't submit in those moments, we actually cut ourselves off from the grace that we need for the trial. Do you see the will of God and trial are going to be wedded until the day we die? And when we get led through the valley of the shadow of death, if we don't run to the Lord in prayer, we actually cut ourselves off. If we run instead to self-pity, if we run instead to alcohol, if we run instead to comfort food, if we run instead to all these other things that can be little functional saviors, we cut ourselves off from the grace that's supposed to really strengthen us so that we don't fall into temptation with those things. We need this. We need to see that God is going to lead us right into the suffering and right through the suffering He's going to be with us through it. And if we see that that's his modus operandi, if that's the way that he works, with Jesus, with the disciples, with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, then when those things come, we're going to know what to do. We're going to pray so that we don't enter into temptation. Have you ever really wrestled and labored in prayer over something? Maybe you lost a job and you had a dire need for a new one and you never prayed like that before. Maybe you had a very serious health issue and you prayed like you'd never prayed before. Maybe someone you love had a very serious health issue and you prayed like you'd never prayed before. What if, friends, brothers and sisters, what if, what if your pride, what if my pride, 
What if your people-pleasing and my people-pleasing temptations, what if your fear of what others are going to think, what if my fear of what other people are going to think, what if your anxiety, my anxiety, what if your lust, what if my lust, what if your covetousness, my covetousness, what if self-pity and complaining and bitterness was just as threatening as your job loss? What if we realized that we live in a war zone? What if we realized how unbelief and temptation of all sorts, the threat that they pose to us and our friends and family, what if, what if we got clued in like that? That can be like a little window. Sometimes the stuff we've really, really wrestled in prayer over, it's important stuff, but there's all this other stuff that's killing us. So do you, do we know how much we need to pray to cling in the midst of a war zone of life in a fallen world that is this life for us as Christians, to cling to our captain? I'm not talking about logging hours to prove how spiritual you are. I'm not talking about pious and pretty and impressive language. I'm, I'm talking about do you know you live in a war zone? Spiritually speaking, we do not live in peacetime. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Principalities, powers, rules. This is, this is wartime. Do you know you have an enemy of the soul? Do you know you're facing and you will face trial and temptation? So sometimes we ask each other, hey, how can I pray for you? Or we talk in home group at the end, you know, when we break and split and pray. Hey, so how can we pray for you? Well, pray for my friend, my son, my daughter, my aunt, my cousin. Okay, those are good things. But what about you? Mm. Nothing. Nothing comes to mind. What? Do you know how desperate you are? Do you know you have an enemy of the soul? Like Jesus is saying, don't sleep. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Are you asleep? Do you have your head in the sand? This is all of us, okay? We are so weak and helpless. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, and he gives us this wonderful gift. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Listen to this quote by John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad. This chapter on prayer in here is wonderful. It's all about how prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, not like a domestic intercom to call for more comforts in the den. Okay, so here's what he says. Read the whole chapter and encourage you to. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayers, a wartime walkie-talkie, so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God in missions while linking us with endless grace for every need. There's so much grace in this passage in the garden for us. The victory was won for us. 
The sympathetic high priest was secured for us. The example of how to fight to stay faithful to our God is given to us. What a great Savior. So the bottom line application is, let's pray. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would come away not with a guilt trip over prayerlessness, merely. But a profound grasp of our need of grace, a profound understanding, a growing understanding of the war zone that we live in spiritually and the dangers that are all around us because of the heart that's in us. And I pray that we would have a profound and growing understanding and appreciation of our captain who blazed the trail before us and won the battle, the battle, and who gives himself to us as this wonderfully sympathetic high priest and giving us the example of how to fight the good fight of the faith. Would you please teach us to pray, Lord? Please show us our need that apart from you we can do nothing. And do it all so that we would not enter into temptation so that we would live lives that display the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. That we would be able to resist temptation, that we would be able to repent of when we've given in to temptation, that we would go forward in your strength to obey your will. And bless people around us with the same kind of blessing that Jesus gave through his words and his deeds. So please, make us more aware of our need. Make us more aware of your glorious, powerful supply. And teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.